0: Welcome to Profiles, a program where we meet people who make a difference in our community and in our lives. I'm Adam Schwartz, and today we're privileged to have in our studio one of the world's leading scholars on the subject that some call the longest hatred anti Semitism. Today we'll visit with Robert S. Wistrich. For the next hour, we'll have a conversation, play some music, and meet the person behind the persona. Robert Wistrich is professor of modern European history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where he also directs its International Center for the Study of Antisemitism. He's been a visiting professor of Jewish studies at University College in London, the Royal Institute of Advanced Studies in the Netherlands, and Brandeis and Harvard Universities. He's written two dozen books, including... The Jews of Vienna in the Age of Franz Joseph, which received the Austrian State Prize in History. His book, Anti-Semitism, The Longest Hatred, won the H. H. Wingate Prize in the U.K. and was the basis for the PBS documentary that he wrote with the same title, The Longest Hatred. Professor Wistrich was historical advisor and scriptwriter to the BBC documentary's Obsession, Radical Islam's Challenge to the West, and Blaming the Jews, which examines anti-Semitism in Arab media and culture. He also wrote Good Morning, Mr. Hitler, a documentary on Nazi art that was commissioned by BBC's Channel 4. He has been a regular contributor over the years to journals such as Encounter, Commentary, the American Historical Review, and the Times Literary Supplement. He edits the research journal Anti-Semitism International and the Posen Papers, in Contemporary Anti-Semitism. Robert Wistrich, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Your latest book, which was just published a few weeks ago by Random House, is an in-depth 1,000-page study called A Lethal Obsession, and it describes anti-Semitism from antiquity to the present. Could you talk a little bit about the experience of writing that book?
1: Well, as I uh, pointed out uh, before we began this interview, it was a book that I wrote by hand. Also a book which I think in terms of the mental, the physical and the emotional effort that it involved, I would not compare with any previous works, even if many of them retrospectively can be seen as leading up to this work. I think it was different because when I said about this project, which was like climbing a very, very high mountain without any certitude that you would ever reach the summit, I was very much aware, more so than at any previous time in embarking on a scholarly project, that this had existential, moral, and political implications that would be unavoidable to come to grips with even if I made a conscious choice and deliberate effort to try and keep the level of discussion as high as could be done and uh, to maintain uh, a definite effort at objectivity even though I knew there is no such thing as complete objectivity in historical scholarship let alone in dealing with a contemporary subject that is so hotly contested and disputed and controversial. So I didn't have illusions about that, but I felt a definite sense of responsibility at one level that I really needed not just to clarify my own mind about many issues I thought about over years, of research and teaching, but that I also needed to bear in mind. And I wanted this book to make a difference that those who would read it would actually, that in some way, it might, if not change their lives, at least change their way of thinking. Not just about this subject, but about all the connections that I make with contemporary issues of international affairs wider topics such as globalization, multiculturalism, radical Islam, um, xenophobia in general, uh, what is the nature of hatred, um, uh, even the Bible, religious faith, who are the Jews, what is their special role, uh, how does one account for it, and so on and so forth. So the ramifications were huge. And in that sense I felt this was the greatest challenge I'd ever taken upon myself, even though I had earlier had written this book and even coined the phrase the longest hatred. So it wasn't as if this was the first time that I had grappled with the
0: topic. When you say you've earlier written this book, you mean you wrote
1: read a section you wrote a section of it? I wrote a book called Anti Semitism, The Longest Hatred, back in nineteen ninety, which Became the basis for the script of the film mm-hmm. uh, that ultimately was shown by PBS and in many countries, which was a three hour documentary film on the history of anti Semitism, which was based on my book, and I was the scriptwriter. So I had clearly grappled with the subject, but that book was 350 pages. It was written in 1990 and it reflected Things as they were at that time on the eve of the collapse of communism and before many events of crucial importance, which are reflected in my new book, which obviously I could not know about at that time, and also the scope and the scale of this project is much greater. And I think I'm a more mature person. Mm
0: -hmm. The subtitle of the book is Anti-Semitism from Antiquity to the Global Jihad. Wasn't anti-Semitism a philosophy that uh, came into being in the
1: late 19th century? If we take the term anti-Semitism from a formal point of view, it was only invented in the late 19th century. To me, more precise, in Germany in 1879. That is when the term, which is a translation from the German antisemitismus, was invoked as an alternative Description of a very ancient phenomenon. Uh, In Germany alone, there were many different terms that had been used before 1879 to describe the uh, more or less continuous manifestations since the early Middle Ages of outbreaks of violence or hostility towards Jews, pogroms, which had occurred in Germany as elsewhere across uh, the European continent. Uh, only it wasn't called anti-Semitism. It might be called Jew hatred, Judenhass in German, might be called anti-Judaism, which has a more theological flavor. There have been various terms which are used. Antisemitism is problematic from a logical point of view because it suggests that there are people who are acting and thinking and opposing something called Semitism which begs the question, well, what is Semitism? And Semitism is misleading because, A, it assumes there is such a thing as a Semitic race of which Jews are a part, although they are not the most numerous part because the Arabs are also a Semitic people and far more numerous. Um, And that is wrong. We have Semitic languages. This is an accepted notion. Hebrew is a Semitic language. Arabic is a Semitic language. Aramaic is a Semitic language, but there is no such thing as a Semitic race. But the anti-Semites, those who chose to call themselves anti-Semites, were quite clear in their own minds that they were opposed only to Jews. They didn't extend it to any other group, Semitic or otherwise. They were opposed to Jews, but they wanted a term which sounded, uh, at least for the for people at that time in the 19th century and up until the end of the Second World War sounded somehow more scientific, not connected with religious hatred, which was seen as passé, something that belonged to the Ancien Regime, to the Middle Ages. Ironically, the anti-Semites, the self-styled anti-Semites, because the term caught on and became widely used everywhere, Mm. They thought that they were free of prejudice. I mean, Mm. we can laugh at that today. Uh, But that's what they thought because they very often were opposed, for instance, to the Christian churches. They were very much opposed to monotheistic religions in general. The anti-Semites of uh, the racist kind frequently were anti-clerical. Not all of them because there were two main strands from the 1880s in Europe, and they spread to the United States and elsewhere. There were two main strands. One blended the new doctrines of race, which underlie anti-Semitism. The idea the world is divided into races. Each of these races is very distinct. There are superior and inferior races. There's a hierarchy of races. Races are the key to understanding history, mm-hmm. the rise and fall of civilizations. Mm-hmm. These were very much accepted ideas. Even in the academy, hmm. in in scientific uh, and philosophical reflection, the idea of race was not discredited until 1945. What do people hate, Jews? Well, this, of course, is one of those enigmas wrapped in a mystery which um, – stands as a great challenge, which uh, obviously was one of the major motivations for trying uh, trying to write a book of this uh, scale. Have I become any the wiser in terms of giving you a simple, straightforward explanation i don't think so. What I think I have acquired through the you know effort of um intensive research and reflection, is a better understanding of how the hatred of Jews functions, in what situations, psychological, social, political, it works, how its dynamics evolve. Mm-hmm. And some aspects of the psychology of anti-Semitism, psychology not only in the individual sense, because there's also questions of mass psychology Mm. Could you talk
0: about that? What are some of the psychological causes of anti-Semitism throughout antiquity?
1: Well, if we go back to antiquity, they were rather different from today. For example, um, I tend to think that in antiquity, therefore, if we go back, as it were, to the beginnings insofar as we can say, here's a beginning, I think that there is a great deal to one of the midrashic insights of uh, Orthodox Judaism, which says, there is a midrash, a saying in, uh, in Orthodox Judaism, that Sinat Yisrael, the Hebrew term for anti-Semitism, literally meaning the hatred of Israel, Sinat Yisrael, Sina meaning hatred in Hebrew, was born on Mount Sinai. And this is a play on words because the word Sinai, which is a Hebrew for Sinai, sounds very close mm-hmm. to Sin-ah. Uh, that is not, strictly speaking, etymologically correct. But it was a convenient peg for this Midrash. And what it says is something very profound. It says that at the moment that the Israelites, the children of Israel, have come out of Egypt the hand of God has delivered them from the house of bondage. And they are now in the wilderness of Sinai and they go to this mountain and they receive through Moses, the chief of all the prophets. They receive the Torah, which is the revealed law of God. That Torah, that teaching, which includes, of course, the Ten Commandments that become the basis, I would say, pretty universally accepted of human civilization. Upon receiving this law, they are divided, certainly in the Jewish tradition, but I would say in the tradition of the nations that from that time on um, interact with uh, the people of Israel, they are distinguished, marked off, demarcated. They are a holy people. Am Kadosh, a holy people. So they're separate. They are separate. And then how does that foment hatred? I think that the way the rabbis saw it and is that the Jewish people, because they were given this mission by God to spread the law, they were granted the law, and of course they had to fulfil it. But they were also spreading the word of God to the pagan nations around them that did not accept these commandments as a way of life, a more moral way of life, if you want. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's uh, property, honor thy father and mother, etc., etc. You know, there are other Midrashim which explain why the nations were offered the same law and refused it. And then God himself imposed this law on the Israelites who also didn't want it. Only much later, it's suggested in the Jewish tradition that they accept it, willingly, in the festival of Purim. That's what's written. Now, why am I saying all this? Of course, in my book, I do not proceed to an analysis based on that, because my approach is secular. Nevertheless, I think that this idea of the separation of Israel from the nations at the level of the moral law, if you like, was a root cause in antiquity for the, uh, if you like, suspicion, hostility, incomprehension, even of highly cultured peoples of the Mediterranean, such as the Greeks, the ancient Greeks and the Romans, uh, who could not understand the singularity of this people and their belief in an abstract, formless God who uh, did not beget and was not b- begotten, who was not a part of a pantheon of gods on some Mount Olympus. This God who uh, was a jealous God, who was exclusive, who insisted, thou shalt have no other gods before me for the Greeks, for the Romans, for other peoples. This was intolerance itself. Mm. And in a way, it is true that monotheistic religions, including those like Christianity and Islam that came later, have an element of intolerance that is built in to this insistence on the single and sole and exclusive God. But... On that basis of separation, because the Jews were marked off also in the Mediterranean by the fact they could could not break bread with their neighbors, eat or drink with them, this social aspect uh, was quite important. But subsequently, the anti-Semitism becomes much more deadly, which is a factor that I really um, examine much more closely later on, including into our own time. That has a quite different basis. That is an antagonism which is no longer based on social or cultural differences, on the fact that the Jews seem so distinctive, and the causes change fundamentally. Let's take a break and listen to some music that
0: you've chosen. Okay. I'm speaking with Robert Wistrich, professor of modern European history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and author of the new book, A Lethal Obsession, Anti-Semitism, From Antiquity to the Global Jihad. Your first selection was a piece, a song by Tom Lehrer,
1: National Brotherhood Week. What made you decide to choose that? Well, I think it's a wonderful satiric song, which uh, certainly addresses the problem of hatred but in an amusing, more light-hearted way. And given the extreme seriousness of, uh, of this topic and our conversation, I thought this would be um, an interesting contrapunt uh, to see how somebody can deal with this problem satirically.
0: One week of every year is designated National Brotherhood Week. During National Brotherhood Week, various special events are arranged to drive home the message of brotherhood. I'm sure we all agree that we ought to love one another, and I know there are people in the world who do not love their fellow human beings, and I hate people like that. (laughs) Here's a song about National Brotherhood Week. White folks hate the black folks And the black folks hate the white folks To hate all but the right folks Is an old established rule But during National Brotherhood Week National Brotherhood Week Lena Horn and Sheriff Clark Are dancing cheek to cheek It's fun to eulogize The people you despise As long as you don't let them in your school Hate the rich folks, and the rich folks Robert Wistrich, professor of modern European history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and author of the new book *Alvithal Obsession: Anti-Semitism from Antiquity to the Global Jihad*. Your new book contains some really shocking incidents of anti-Semitism in the world today, including some from some countries that I certainly did not. Uh, don't associate with anti-Semitism, such as Belgium and Norway, Sweden, England. Uh, Could you talk about the current state of anti-Semitism in the world today?
1: Well, if I may, I would would begin with uh, some of those countries that you mentioned because they all belong to the Western European part of the European Union and they are indeed considered to be exemplars of liberal democracy, of uh, pluralism, of tolerance, of hum- humanitarian ethics, and so on. Uh, but as uh, was implied in that satirical song of Tom Lehrer, um, I think there is also very often a deep, though hidden, intolerance among those who claim to tolerate others and do so in the name of values that they assume to be superior, and then they sit in judgment and even hate those that do not exactly conform to their own values. Now, in the case of the Jewish minority, certainly until the time of the Shoah, it was normal, even in Western Europe, to express feelings of, contempt or hostility or overt, brazen even, hatred towards Jews. There was nothing unacceptable in public life about calling yourself an anti-Semite. Things changed since 1945. And increasingly, uh, in the following decades, there was an element of public unacceptability, even though it may have been wrapped up in hypocrisy, in not expressing exactly the feelings that people had beneath the surface. But in in the wake of the revelations of the death camps, the horrors with which anti-Semitism had become associated of, you know, systematic, planned, cold-blooded mass murder, it was not fashionable and it did not seem right for somebody to stand up and openly say, we are anti-Semites. But gradually, and I trace it in my book really from the 1970s onwards, a new discourse develops, including in those countries uh, of Western Europe, less so in the United States, I would have to say, whereby one has to find a new form of expression for sentiments that are no longer respectable. A more acceptable form, you mean? The more acceptable form... And the one which is also legally untouchable is anti-Zionism. If you express sentiments that are extremely negative, uh, whether overtly or covertly, uh, about the Jewish people, about Judaism, about Jewish history, uh, but you do it wrapped up in uh, this uh, um, framework of being opposed only to Israel or to the philosophy and or ideology and policy of Zionism, that's okay. Not only is it okay, it is becoming increasingly fashionable and the proof that you have joined the liberal progressive club. You know, you are an anti-Zionist. Welcome to the club. Can you give us
0: an example or two of that?
1: Well, uh, you can find examples on campuses – Uh, all over the Western world, including here in the United States. You have today something that would have been unthinkable even 20 years ago, at least in this country, namely Israel Apartheid Week. You have regular colloquia and conferences and discussions in which uh, there is a certain conformity even of thought whereby it is assumed Israel is an aggressor, Israel is at fault for the lack of peace in the Middle East. Israel has been guilty since its very foundation of the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. When I arrived here in Bloomington, Indiana, and I was unpacking, and I switched on the TV, there was a caller uh, to a, a program, there was a Republican senator in the studio, he was answering questions from callers, and there was this caller who went on and on and on about how is it possible that uh, the United States and the Western world, complaining about Iran, when in fact Israel is far worse, and that not only does Israel have nuclear weapons, it has committed genocide, even used the word a Holocaust, against the Palestinian. The senator... I mean, I was stunned. I can't remember his name. Uh, And I'm sure he's not anti-Israel. The senator not only did not contradict him, he simply said, as he had answered to all the other callers, yes, I do agree with you. You're quite right. We have to go to the root causes. But this man was actually expressing Mm anti-Semitic sentiments wrapped up in this mythology that Israel has carried out a genocide against the Palestinians, which is pure nonsense.
0: The people who express these views, such as the organizers of the Israel Apartheid Week that you mentioned, would say, isn't it possible to make criticisms of Israel without being anti-Semitic?
1: That doesn't make me anti-Semitic. I'm criticizing the government policies of Israel. But they're not. You see, of course, not only is it acceptable, legitimate, and even normal, to express criticism of uh, Israeli government policies. Uh, I would uh, be really troubled if there was no such criticism. Uh, As an Israeli citizen, I, like virtually everybody else I know, and not just in the universities, spends uh, an awful lot of time and energy in criticizing the government. This is a normal feature of a democratic society. And Israel is a vibrant democracy. Anybody who has experienced it at first hand would know that. And therefore, criticism is the lifeblood, actually, of the way Israel functions. When you start saying that Israel has and is continuing to commit genocide or ethnic cleansing against uh, the Palestinians, that the operation in Gaza, let's take the most recent example, January 2009, even here in the United States, but much more in the Middle East and in Europe and other continents, you had mass demonstrations talking about this genocide against the Palestinians. Uh, Let's look at this a little closely. Even if we take what I believe to be the inflated figures of the Palestinians themselves. We're talking about approximately 1,200 people who died in a war that went on for three weeks. On the Palestinian side, it was claimed the majority were civilians. On the Israeli side, it was claimed that they were split more 50-50. There were combatants and civilians who were killed. One thousand two hundred people now i don 't minimize the death of a single human being if it was uh, unnecessary or uh, we are speaking about innocent people so that 's not the issue, but there there is a meaning to words you corrupt the language and you corrupt thought when you start taking labels like genocide and holocaust and applying it to What if you look around the world at at conflicts that have continued to this day, this is a tiny number of people and it is not mass murder by any stretch of the imagination. It was generally the result of what here in this country, for instance, when America bombed in Afghanistan or even when it was involved in the Bosnian Wars at the end of the 1990s, it was called in this country, and I was here, was called collateral damage. Civilians get killed, just as they did in Belgrade, and they were innocent, and they got killed. And Israel, which made great efforts in this case to try and reduce to the absolute minimum unintended civilian casualties, of course, in wartime, there is no perfection, however well-targeted, however precise. This has nothing whatsoever to do to do with genocide. The reasons for that incursion were absolutely clear. It only came after eight years of the firing of rockets on southern Israeli towns, which I would say is remarkable restraint by any standards. Mm. This is why the war – doesn't mean I don't have criticisms of the war, other criticisms, other kinds of criticisms. This is why it had general broad support among the Israeli population, which is not a particularly warlike population. Nobody likes to go to war. The costs of war are high and it's not a light matter. But this abuse of language reflects, I think, something deeply distorted in the minds of so many people that insist on using this terminology mm-hmm. because it cannot be accidental that they choose this kind of terminology and apply it to the Jewish state. They don't apply it and they didn't apply it to many other uh, situations that involve, uh, uh, you know, Africa or um, uh, Chechnya or Tibet or many, many other cases that we get. They don't usually talk in
0: these terms. So this is an example of what you've called uh, the new anti-Semitism or anti-racist racism? Yes. What's the Red-Green Alliance?
1: The Red-Green Alliance is a kind of, at first glance, unnatural alliance between people on the left, whether they be communists, whether they be uh, left-wing social democrats anarchists uh, anti-globalists people on the left and uh, the color green is the symbol of islam islamists or we could say for shorthand a marxist islamist alliance and why do i say it's, it's a bizarre alliance at first glance because there are so many things which in a more logical and rational worldview would separate these two worldviews and movements. For example, the question of secularism. The Islamists are totally opposed, so secularism and secularization in all its forms, whereas uh, leftists traditionally are secularist and in favor of strict separation of religion and state and so on. If you look at a very, I would say, critical issue for Understanding Islamism, the attitude towards women, the rights of women, the emancipation of women, this is a no-no for all Islamist movements. Women have to be uh, concealed behind a burqa or a niqba or whatever. Uh, women should not uh, be seen in public. And there's r- restrictions, particularly the more extreme jihadi-type movements, like, and the Taliban is perhaps the most extreme of all. Obviously, on the left, this is uh, or should be anathema. Then we come to the question of socialism. Most Islamist movements, certainly in the past, they were anti-communist. They are not in favor of socialism, although some have dabbled in a kind of uh, alliances with socialists. But uh, here again, there's no politics of class war. The old left was very anti-Islam anti-Islamic, it regarded everything connected with Islam as being backward, deeply reactionary, and something that uh, belonging to a feudal way of life that had to be overthrown. That was the classic, traditional, old-left way of thinking. In the red-green axis of our time, of the last uh, 20 years or so, Um, all this seems to have dissipated. And the question is why. And and certainly here, the attitude towards Jews and Israel is one of the cements, one of the the bonds that links together uh, these two polarities. The Islamists and the Marxists of different shades, they all hate Israel. They also hate America. Their anti-Americanism is sometimes precedes their anti-Semitism, and sometimes, as in the Islamist case, it's partly derived from their anti-Semitism. On the left, it's more that the anti-Americanism feeds the anti-Semitism and the, and the anti-Israel, uh, I would say, obsession. So there are, it's true that there are some roots that go back to the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, Uh, But there it was more instrumental. When the Communist International was founded, they were looking for a lever in the East, in the Orient, with which to undermine the colonial empires. And they were prepared to use slogans, the communists, I mean, that they did not believe in personally like jihad. And they encouraged the holy war because they thought this would create a rising of the masses against the British, the French and the Russian empires and, and, uh, and so on.
0: You're listening to Profiles. I'm Adam Schwartz, and I'm speaking with Professor Robert Wistrich, professor of modern European history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, whose latest book is A Lethal Obsession, Anti-Semitism from Antiquity to the Global Jihad. And, Professor Wistrich, you've chosen for your second selection a piece by the Rolling Stones, Street Fighting Man. What made you decide on that?
1: If I remember correctly, this song was written and performed in 1969, roughly 40 uh, 40 years ago. And uh, first of all, I liked the song. I was, in the late 60s and early 70s, a fan of the Rolling Stones. But this was a song that captured that moment in time, perhaps better than any other. But what is interesting is the message is that in sleepy old London town there is no room for a street-fighting man. And I was living in sleepy old London town at the time. But I participated in many of the radical student revolts elsewhere, such as in Paris and even in the United States, where I studied shortly before that, at a time because of the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement, when uh, in 1968, the campuses in this country exploded. And so this song also has a touch of irony that I like and reflects an error.
0: Stones performing Street Fighting Man. A selection by my guest on Profiles, Robert Wistrich. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving Central and Southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And The Funeral Chapel of Bloomington providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. You've dedicated your life to researching and teaching people about anti-Semitism. What motivates you to teach about anti-Semitism so tirelessly?
1: I think we need to put that in context. When I give my courses at the Hebrew University or if I teach uh, abroad in another university, uh, antisemitism is one of three or four major themes that I like to focus on. The others would include uh, the history of the Jews in Central and Western Europe since the mo- beginning of the modern era and until the present the history of Zionism and also of its critics, uh, the study of fascist and also left-wing movements. But I think that I find this issue of anti-Semitism in some ways intellectually more challenging, baffling, intriguing, uh, sometimes horrific. One needs to take a deep breath. One needs to develop strong antibodies in order to confront this. But um, unlike many of my colleagues, I do not agree that this is somehow beneath our, you know, dignity or our scholarly so – this is not a serious subject. I absolutely have never shared that, that view. Anti,
0: that the study of anti-Semitism
1: is not a serious subject? You would be surprised how often I have heard, even among colleagues in Israel. Uh, rather, I would say cynical, deprecating, and very ill informed remarks about this subject, as if uh, uh oh, this is something which people raise for political reasons. this is a quite fashionable view in certain circles today. This is a card that is played uh, this is um, you know invented it's exaggerated. Uh, There are much more pressing issues of bigotry or prejudice or racism in the world. I have heard these kind of views to a surprising degree uh, from many quarters, including highly educated people. Hmm. And you know what? This motivated me even more Hmm. to show them that they were profoundly wrong and that this is a very illuminating subject. And the more you come to grips with it, the better you can understand many problems in the modern world, in our lives, whether you're Jewish or not Jewish, doesn't really matter. And even if you have never confronted it directly, it's something you need to know about. You quoted
0: an English journalist in your book who's Jewish who said, I don't feel safe in my own country anymore. Mm -hmm. Exaggeration?
1: Definitely not. The man who said that, a very fine journalist and very funny man, he is the last person in the world that anybody w- could accuse of exaggerating. And he is not one of those people who came easily to such a conclusion mm. because he was very well integrated and in a way still is. Uh, accepted, um, even sought after a journalist in newspapers like The Independent that he writes for, which are really virulently anti-Israel. I know that, he, like many others, has gradually come round through a long process of, of of, of, coming to feel he's no longer, as you said, at home in his country. Now, I came to this conclusion much earlier, but perhaps that's because I was more familiar with the history and perhaps more aware of its potential, even in periods where it seems more dormant. And... I think that it helps you also to get a better insight into yourself because one of the philosophers that I quote in my book, um, not very fashionable today, Jean-Paul Sartre, the uh, French existentialist philosopher, um, wrote a profound work in 1946, immediately after the Shoah, a portrait of the anti-Semite, which he obviously drew on his own experience. And you can sense in that that uh, Sartre must have had Anti-Semitic feelings that he fought with, that Mm. he overcame. We all have feelings like that, not only towards Jews. And Jews have such feelings towards others. And we have
0: to wrestle with them. Did you experience anti-Semitism growing up?
1: In the school I went to in London, uh, England, Mm -hmm. uh, I would go further. I would say that in the late 1950s uh, and then high school in the 1960s, Uh, 90% of my teachers were either covert or overt anti-Semites. The difference is there was no Race Relations Act in those days. There were no sanctions. Nobody made an issue of it. It, Frankly, it was considered almost normal. And it would take forms that um, uh, today one could barely scarcely credit. On the other hand... I personally was in a curious position. Most of the same teachers who were anti-Semitic for some reason singled me out as their exceptional Jew. You know, anti-Semites often have their exceptional Jews. So I didn't bear the brunt of this, perhaps because I was good at sports or perhaps because I was, uh, you know, uh, a good student, whatever. Uh, This didn't... um, improved things from my point of view. In a way, it made it even more distasteful to see that others were being mocked. Uh, There was a a lot of derision in all of this. Um, Just on the grounds of their ethnic or religious background, today, that situation has improved. But what has happened is that other forms of uh, prejudice, of bigotry, and even of the kind of things that I describe in my book, openly genocidal forms of anti-Semitism have arisen to replace what we knew from the darker days of European history. There is some profound fear and anxiety that we could call a phobia, very hard, To explain where it originates because we must not confuse the rationalizations Mm -hmm. that anti-Semites always give, the reasons, uh, with the deeper cause. Because, you know, Sartre, whom I referred to earlier, said something that always appealed to me. He said, in the last analysis, the anti-Semite wants the death of the Jew. Now, that's a seemingly extreme statement. We all know anti-Semites who are almost jokingly, but second nature, they make offhand remarks and nobody thinks of them as harboring thoughts of, uh, you know, destroying the people that they are uh, laughing about derisively. And yet I think there is a level at which this statement is not wrong. It's just that most of the time, the, the phobias, the anxieties, the delusions very often paranoid delusions, which uh, fill the anti-Semitic fantasy world, that uh, these remain at that level. And they are not implemented, they're not carried out in acts. And if they are only an expression of individual uh, pathologies, they therefore do not either don't come to our attention, they don't you know, disturb the public order. They're not threatening in an overt public way. We're beyond that phase today. And that's, of course, one of the points of my book, that we have in the last decade experienced a very significant rise globally. It's harder for Americans to see this because America remains an exception for the moment in this wave of... in some countries, even a kind of tidal wave of increase of anti-Semitic incidents, and the rhetoric, especially in the Middle East, the demonizing, uh, the demonology, uh, which is uh, mainstream. It's not a handful of isolated extremists over there. Mm. It's part of a culture of jihad. It's part of the part of the narrative of Palestinians, of Arabs, of mainstream. Uh, thinking, as well as of the Islamic uh, jihadists and of Iran, and so on and so forth.
0: On that point, we'll have to bring this episode of Profiles to an end. I've been speaking with Robert Wistrich, professor of modern European history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where he also directs its International Center for the Study of Antisemitism. He is the author of the new book, A Lethal Obsession, Antisemitism from Antiquity to the Global Jihad. Professor Wistrich, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And we're going to go out on the third piece of music you've chosen, Mr. Tambourine Man by Dylan. Would you care to tell us why you chose that?
1: Well, Dylan was really the prophetic voice in popular song of the 1960s for a whole generation, and I would count myself as belonging to that 60s generation. And this was my favorite song, because it represented, I suppose, at some more unconscious level for me, the uh, a more positive side of the wandering Jew.
0: I'm Adam Schwartz, inviting you to join us next week on the next edition of Profiles.
1: Hey, Mister Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy and there's no place I'm going to Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me In the jingle jangle morning I'll come following you Though I know that evening's empire has returned into sand
0: The program you just heard was recorded in January of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, Providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.